will be looking at the first 13 verses of Isaiah 28. This chapter is divided into a couple of sections and may even three sections. Not quite sure how I'll handle the rest of it, but I do know that we'll be looking at the first 13 verses today. Before we do so again, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help specifically with this text. Let's, let's go to him now. Our Lord Jesus, again, we come to you because we are in desperate need of help with your word. Not because it's complicated, but because we are. Because we take easy things and twist them to make them about us or to make us look special and to make you look less than what you are. You are the Lord of our lives. We bow down to you. You are right in all that you say and all that you do. And so, Lord, we pray that you write our hearts even now, that you show us our sin, as it, as that we would be convicted of it, that we might follow you more, and that you show us more and more of who you are, that we might know you more. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as we come to this passage, as I was going through it, we're going to see that there's a group of people that were teachers in the day, and it reminded me of what we have in the Reformed faith by the way of catechisms. We recite a catechism here. We've been doing that for the last year or so, working through the Westminster Catechism, and we have those two things, and we have the confession of faith, of course, and this is really what one of the things that separates us in the Reformed faith from the rest of Protestantism is this catechism. For Presbyterians, again, it's the Lord, larger and shorter catechism. There are several other Reformed catechisms out there, lots of them actually, very good ones. And they all have the same sort of purpose. They're to teach the basic truths of our faith for us and for our children. That we could know what we should believe, that we would know how we ought to act. Of course... The problem with catechisms is that they aren't scripture. It can't actually change us the way that scripture does. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces even to the soul. The catechism is just a good teaching tool. And that isn't to diminish the catechism, but that's to make sure that we limit it. You can have the entire shorter catechism memorized. I've known lots of people, lots of Ten-year-olds that have the shorter catechism memorized and still live as if the Bible has no bearing on their life at all. You can know the Heidelberg and not know Jesus. It is totally possible. And again, it doesn't mean that we should stop teaching the catechism. It just means that it has a proper place. The people in Israel in the time of Isaiah knew the scriptures, especially the priests and the prophets. They knew them backwards and forwards. The, they had this spiritual elite, and when we say that they knew them, I mean they could recite them. They could recite Genesis, for instance. I mean, they could do the whole thing. They sang the scriptures daily. They had the entire Psalter memorized because this was their songbook. Many of them, again, could recite books like Leviticus by, by heart because they knew those things. But memorization of the word didn't help them. 
Because God, as we're going to see, and as we've seen throughout this book, still came to them in judgment. Because there were very few faithful among them. In a world where anything and everything is essentially at our fingertips now, we can just find out whatever we'd like anytime. It can be an easy snare for us as well. It's really easy to stack up books and actually have heard of people. Alex told me a story this week of someone who has a book list that he carries around to show people what he's read. It can be really easy to have that sort of thing. And to not know anything that actually really matters. Or the one who matters, Jesus Christ. And so in our text today, we're going to see this idea that's at the center of what Isaiah is teaching. As he passes judgment again on the northern kingdom. We're going to consider this in three parts. The height of hedonism. The pride of knowledge. And then the judgment on the proud. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Isaiah 28. Verses 1 through 13. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Chapter 28, starting at verse 1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a strong arm of hail and destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters he cast down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first, the first ripe fig. Before the summer, when someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit. No space is left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? Those who are taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips, with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people, to whom he has said, This is the rest, give rest to the weary, and and this is repose. Yet he would not hear. For the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. And so just a real quick review of the historical context. It's good to do this from time to time as we get into this. And so we don't lose our bearing. 
the nation of the people of God had been split into two nations by the time Isaiah was around doing his work. The north, the northern kingdom and Judah to the south. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom and Jerusalem the capital of the southern kingdom. Both kingdoms are dealt with in the historical books of the Bible. You know, First and Second Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. You see those. Samuel, you really just have one kingdom, but towards the end, and definitely in Kings, you have that sort of split taking place. And both of those kingdoms are deserving of the wrath of God based on how they acted. The northern kingdom never had a king that was good. And they drifted off into their own brand of idolatry and hedonism. As you read about them, it just keeps getting worse. In our passage today, this is put on center stage. Isaiah is sending an oracle against them. They are still the people of God, and God is still treating them as if they are his children. This is likely written soon before the empire of Assyria sacked them. They were taken over in 722, so this probably happened in the 20 or so years preceding that time. Samaria was destroyed as well, and you can go see it now. It's a, it's a ruin. Uh, the countryside around it's beautiful, but the city itself is just a ruin. And so this is a warning to the north, but even much more to Isaiah's true audience, the south which still had some vestiges of the worship of their creator and, they, and a desire to serve him. And so you see some of that. There was a remnant in the north too, but a very small remnant. In the south, you still have that. We'll deal with that warning to them, more specifically next week, and we'll focus our attention on the northern kingdom today. And so with that, the height of hedonism, our first point. Verse 1. All the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty. First off, the word or the ESV, which is what I preach from, uses this word "awe" at the beginning, kind of this um, pronunciation of surprise, almost. But really, the word there is probably better translated. And if you have something besides the ESV, you probably see it, and it's "woe, woe to the proud." And so I think that's a better translation, fits the context definitely better, and even the context in the following chapters, we're going to see that sort of idea. There's a double kind of picture that's going on in this passage, in this verse. And you have the crown here that's really mentioned twice. And first of all, you see the fading flower of its glorious beauty, and this idea of the drunkards of Ephraim. And the, the idea here is that you have a party, and at the beginning of the party, you have these the people, and they're wearing like a wreath or something like that around their neck, and they're all dressed up for the party. But as the, the party gets livelier, and the flowers have been cut for a whole day, by the end of the evening, what are the flowers beginning to do? They're beginning to fade, just like the senses of the people that are there at the party. But there's also a double meaning there. Because you also have this picture of the crown, which says, which is the head of the rich valley of those who are overcome with wine. This, this head of the valley is probably referring to the city of Samaria itself. So if you were to be in the valley and look up on the hill by which Samaria sits on, the walls of the city would kind of serve like a crown on top of the hill. And so you have this very vivid picture 
picture of what we are to see here in the text. Samaria itself is also being judged as people there are living as if there is no tomorrow. This has been an indictment several times on the people uh, that they just have this kind of mentality, this eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. That's exactly what you see going on here in the city. If tomorrow doesn't matter, then how we act today doesn't matter either. And so that's exactly what you see going on here in the northern kingdom. This is how they've chosen to live. So look what verse 2 tells us. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of might of the, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he cast down to the earth with his hand. So here we have the reason that they should have taken their days a little bit more seriously. The Lord has one who will judge the people, and that judgment will be swift and violent. We know that because history tells us the story. The one that he is speaking of is the one that he has spoken of in previous chapters. It's Assyria that he is using as his tool to pronounce judgment on the northern, and then really later, the southern kingdom. And it's not as if the people of Samaria had never heard of Assyria. It's not like Assyria is going to just sneak up into existence and be the most powerful army in the land. It's happened over many decades that the cities all around them, one by one, are falling to this Assyrian juggernaut. And yet the people of Samaria continue to party on as if nothing is wrong. They hadn't fallen yet. Because, of course, the Lord has kept them safe and the Lord is waiting for the right time for that to happen. This should have served as a warning for repentance to them as well. Look at the nations around you. The reason you're still here is because I'm your Lord. Yet they would not listen. They will be like the first ripe fig of the summer. And I love this verbal picture here that Isaiah chooses. People, you can get the idea the people of this area, which they just, they eat figs because the fig tree is a popular thing over there. All winter and spring, they're waiting for the figs to come and they can, I mean, it's like tomatoes people do with tomatoes here. They like watch that one tomato and they can't wait till the day that they can finally eat it. You get this with the fig tree. They're watching for that one fig and they're like, not today, not today. And as soon as they see it, they're gone. They take their salt shaker out there to the garden and they eat the tomato right there next to the plant. At least that's what my mom always did because she just couldn't wait to get it inside. Just ate it like an apple. And so a very vivid picture in much the same way the Lord waits for his time of judgment. And when it gets here, he will spring to action swiftly and they will simply disappear. What are the northern tribes known as for the rest of scripture? The lost tribes. They're gone. Even in those days, in the northern kingdom, however, there will be a remnant. And they will long to see the Lord's day. And we've seen that kind of idea in the chapters that we've gone through. Even the remnant of God longs to see the judgment of God because it means that his decree is going forward. Again, the remnant has nothing to fear from the Lord's judgment. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't lose their earthly lives in the struggle, perhaps. Absolutely, they probably would. It could happen. 
However, they will gain something much more valuable than their lives. They will gain a different sort of crown, a crown of glory. It will be the Lord himself. Verse 5, in that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory. It's a pretty incredible idea there. He will be their glory, their beauty, their justice, their strength, all of those things. I think this is very encouraging to those who are fighting the good fight of faith, who are standing in the gap, so to speak, for their faith day in and day out, because it can be very discouraging as we look around us and see that there are very few left. Now, we want to be careful with that because it's real easy to kind of get woe is me. Oh, look, I'm the only one that's faithful. No, that's not the case. The Lord always has a, pe- has a people for himself and there will always be faithful. But it is easy to look around us and say we're few. A couple of things. Be encouraged first to continue in the faith even though there are few. In our world, in our world, things like social justice and equality are slowly starting to stamp out actual social justice and equality. These ideas don't actually stand for what they are. The real things are being stamped out. The Christians who stand for those things, it may be easier for us or seem easier for us to jump ship rather than remain biblical. But we have to stay the course. Of course we want justice. Of course we want people to be treated with dignity. But we also want the world to conform to the scriptures. That is what he's called us to do. To go to the world teaching them all that I have commanded. Absolutely we should do this. And the world is always going to see this is a different way than us. Every time. They'd rather continue in their drunken party. Just like we see here with the drunkards of Ephraim. They'll kick those who stand out for the truth. And when the pressure mounts, there will be many so-called Christians who will capitulate. I think we're even beginning to see that in the church. We should resist because there will come a time when those who stand against the Lord will pay. It could be in this lifetime, but it will definitely be at the end of time. We must make sure that we stand for the truth of the Bible, even if the culture stands against us in opposition. And that's hard. It's hard to even say those words. But I think we need to be also encouraged. And another thing here is that our message will not fall on deaf ears. Because we know that there are those out there that are his that have not yet come. He tells us that in very clear words. There are those sheep that are not of this fold. And that we should go out and find them. And that's why we preach the gospel. That's why we preach to anyone and everyone. We're not going out and finding the ones who will respond. We're preaching it to everyone. We'll let the Lord deal with who's going to respond and who's not. And that's encouraging to me. To know that I can be faithful to the gospel and he will bring those to himself whom he will. That should be encouraging to all of us to remain faithful. And that brings me to the next point, the pride of knowledge. Look at verses 7 and 8. These also will... Will these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink? The priest and prophet reel with strong drink and they are swallowed by wine. They stagger 
with strong drink. You wouldn't expect to see this from the priest and the prophet, but they're amongst the partiers as well. They're partying so hard, in fact, look at verse 8, for all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. It's pretty vivid for Isaiah. These are the ones that are supposed to be leading the charge of holy biblical living, and they are not. Instead, they are partying harder than anyone else. They've partied so so much that they vomited all over the place. There's not one clean spot left on the floor. That's a very vivid picture for us. Um, and it's trying to show us this idea that no one is above the command to be holy and to follow the instructions on how to be holy, which is what's found in our word, which is what these people probably knew by heart. But these priests think they're above the whole thing. And that's what we see in verse 9. They're mocking Isaiah. So what you see in verse 9 is the priests and the prophets speaking back to to Isaiah the prophet, saying, to whom will he teach knowledge? I mean, we don't obviously, we don't need to know this stuff. We already know. We learned it when we were kids. Who's he going to explain this message to? We already know the whole message. Those who are weaned from milk, those who are taken from the breast. Like, is he going to teach babies? Because we already know all this stuff. And then verse 10 is an interesting verse in the Hebrew because you get this repetition for it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept. If you look in the Hebrew, it's just one syllable words. It's really actually very hard to translate. The best way to think about this is when we are teaching someone to speak. I mean, I think about when my kids were saying their first words and I was trying to get them to to, to say things. We would repeat the same things over and over again to them. Dada, mama, precept upon precept, precept upon precept. If I could say the Hebrew without sounding crazy, I think it might actually make more sense to you. It's just these weird utterances, like repeating the alphabet over and over to someone. Is this how he's going to teach us? Kind of like some Disney show that teaches little kids about talking to them from the television screen. He's mo- they're mocking Isaiah. So you're going to teach us just a little bit at a time? Here a little, there a little? Is this what you're going to do? He's, what, the, what are they essentially saying to him? They're only worthy. These teachings that you have for us, they're only worthy of babies. And when he teaches it, it's going to be just like Sesame Street. Teaching someone to read or teaching someone what the the letter K is or the number two is. These are high and mighty leaders and teachers of Ephraim. And they're convinced that they have moved past the milk that's given to babies. And they're now in need of something more solid that Isaiah cannot give them. And so they're drinking wine instead. And they mock Isaiah because they've risen above the plain things. And they're now looking for complex truths that will puff them up and make them look special. Does this sound familiar at all to you? Over my years in the ministry, I've heard this idea used much the same as the drunkards of Ephraim were using it. I've had Christian parents tell me when I was in youth ministry and I would teach the very plain things of Scripture over and over again. They would tell me that since their children were catechized, I mean, they knew the whole 
shorter catechism, that I no longer needed to teach them the elementary things of Scripture, that we needed to move on to the more complex things. As if I could somehow open a secret panel in my Bible and find the real things that I've been holding back this whole time. As if that existed. You know, they... These kids could tell me all about their catechism. They actually had it memorized better than I did. But when it came to how they treated their friends, when it came to how they even treated their parents, they demonstrated that they had a below baseline understanding of the most simple and basic truths of the Bible. They needed milk, not solid food. Several times in the New Testament, there's this idea of milk versus solid food, and I'm sure you've run across it in the New Testament, Second Peter 2, 1 Corinthians 3, to name a few places, where it talks about how we need the milk, the teaching of the Scriptures, before we can move on to the solid food. And the general idea is the same. There are a set of truths in the Scriptures, the primary truths of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, this covenant of grace, that you see from the opening chapters of Genesis all the way through the end, God the Father making a covenant with God the Son, saying, there are people that I have saved and I have set apart for myself, and you are going to go and you're going to redeem them with your own blood. They are mine, says the Lord. And what does he say to the people over and over again throughout the scriptures? I will be your God. You will be my people. And he has set a people for himself. This is a very basic, simple truth of the scripture. There are no secret depths. There's no back panel that you can open and find the secret things of the scriptures that are only available to those who have, quote unquote, leveled up in their faith, leaving us peons behind. There is one primary truth, and it weaves its way throughout all of scripture. There is a God. He created all things. He gave us his word. And it's plain. And guess what we did? We rebelled and said, no, your word is not good enough. My word is better. And we deserve death because of that. Yet God in his mercy decided that some should be saved. He sent Jesus to save them. And one day we'll live with him forever and eternity. That is the message of scripture over and over in scripture to the degree that you understand that primary truth is what separates those who are still on milk so to speak and those who are on solid food and the way one acts shows how much a person understands that primary truth someone can know all the theology in the world but yet if they treat people like garbage They're showing me that they are in need of milk more than they're in need of anything. And that the spiritual elite of Isaiah's day had indulged themselves to the point that they no longer saw a holy God as a threat to them. And they decided to live however they wanted. And the holy God took note of that. And that brings me to the last point, the judgment of the proud. Verses 11 through 13. For by a people of strange lips, with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak this to his people. Again, he's again referring to Assyria, who is this 
people of a foreign tongue that he's going to use to judge his own people. And this is what the Assyrians will say to them. This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them. And notice how the Lord does this. He uses their own words to mock them. Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. The most basic thing, see, you don't understand that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. He's using their mockery against them. And it's by these very simple truths that the Lord will judge them. It's not any different today. The truth of Scripture is so clear that a child can understand the primary truth therein. Yet it is complex enough that scholars have written millions of pages and will write millions more on its depths. And this should be both a comfort to us and a warning to us. We should be comforted in that this life that is full of difficulty, most of the difficulty that we create for ourselves, unfortunately, yet we have a God who loves us, who gave himself for us, For the people of God, we have nothing to fear because we are his people. We are free to live in such a way that God would receive the most glory. Absolutely, that should be the goal of our lives. Because of the work of the Son, Jesus Christ, we have that sort of freedom. He, Jesus, is our crown of glory, as we read there in verse 5. Our diadem of beauty. We have nothing else. We should want for nothing else. Absolutely. However, let us stand warned because these truths aren't just for the time that we spend together at church, but these truths are for all of life. We could easily fall into the trap that we see those in Ephraim falling into, thinking ourselves to be knowledgeable, only to find out it's the most basic information that we lack. For the believer, the life of repentance shows that we are still learning. A believer who is repentant is the most wise of them all because they realize they don't know anything and they need all the help possible. The life of pride shows that we think we've already arrived and that we can't be taught even by the Lord himself. Repent of your pride. And turn to the one who will always be able to teach you. All of us are guilty of this in some level. For the unbeliever, you have only one task. Turn to Jesus. He's the only one that can save you. It could even be that you simply know that you know these things. If you've been here for any length of time, you know them, you've heard them. But you don't really want to believe them. A fellow pastor of mine recently said, he said this at our presbytery meeting actually, he says, you can know the gospel like you can know Abe Lincoln as the 16th president. It can just be knowledge to you, something that you have written down and you can file away and you're like, yep, got that down. It's not that at all. The question is, do you know Jesus? 
Will he look at you on that last day and say, away from me, I never knew you. Have you called upon his name and asked for salvation? If you haven't, today's the day. Call upon his name and be saved. In conclusion, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us stand for the truth. In a time when it's getting harder and harder, our freedoms in this country will soon go away. If not in my lifetime, they will ha- it will happen. You can see it. Just watch the news. The church is becoming hated for whatever reason. It's because Jesus is Lord. But our freedom in Christ will never go away. It's something they can't take from us. Hold on to Jesus. And let us be a source of truth to the world. Because the world is looking everywhere else for that truth. Let us be the source of truth that they look to. Let us be faithful to preach the name of Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord, as we come to you, we all fall victim to this idea of thinking that we have finally arrived, that now we are able to really understand the, the, the secret things of our faith, and we can no longer be instructed by the simple things. Lord, help us to hold fast to the simple things. Help us to never let go of them. In fact, help us to never stop teaching and learning from them. Because these are the words of salvation, so simple that a child can understand them, yet so complex that I still struggle with them today. And so, Lord, help us. We believe. Help our unbelief. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.